0: Before we get started, just a quick content warning, there is some strong language used in this episode.
1: Well it is week, and I love Jay very much and I thought, well, what if I I don't know. What
0: if I set, set his furniture on fire? Don't oh, no. shut that on fire.
1: I I remember writing a thing where it's at a dog track, when the dog catches the rabbit, they reward the overachieving mutt by taking him out and destroying him because he doesn't want to chase the rabbit anymore. And in show business, they just wait for you to destroy yourself once you catch the rabbit, once you realize the rabbit's fake. Now
0: you have to sit in this. Now sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down.
1: I'm not sitting in it. In that chair. I did have a leg up in some ways, but I didn't have a leg up in the world of being an independent filmmaker. You're working at Sundance. A DVD comes across, and it's a movie made from the dude from Police Academy. I guarantee you, they put it on to laugh at it <laughs> first. You no, know, I'm sure they're like, "Well, let's see how this is gonna be."
0: I'm John Frechette and welcome to Best Laid Plans, the podcast that speaks to successful creatives in various industries about the moments in their careers when they had to pivot, compromise, or make a comeback when things didn't go as planned. If you lived in North America during the 1980s, whether or not you were a fan of stand-up, you were almost certainly familiar with Bobcat Goldthwaite, the unique and maniacal talent that fit right in with the era that birthed MTV, grunge, and a nationwide comedy boom. Hailing from Syracuse, New York, before taking his licks as a comic in Boston, Bobcat gained notoriety at a young age, appearing on The David Letterman Show when he was just 20 years old, before headlining tours, packed houses, comedy specials, a bevy of late-night appearances, and even opening up for Nirvana. For a while, at least, Bobcat defined an era of comedy, not just for his stage work or his unique album Meet Bob or the outrageous HBO specials, but also as an actor in such films as Hot to Trot, Police Academy 2, 3, and 4, Scrooged, One Crazy Summer, and his own directorial efforts, such as Shakes the Clown and Windy City Heat. And while laughing audiences tried to figure out who was behind the strange and often surreal persona that would scream, stutter, and wheeze on stage and film, it was Bobcat himself that ultimately did the most questioning, eventually leading him on a new path that required personal reflection and professional rebranding, giving way to a second act in the independent film world that took him to Sundance and beyond. Now, here's Bobcat with his story.
1: I loved getting attention, and I loved getting laughs when I was a tiny kid. I. Remember when I was six, I did a tumbling routine in front of the whole school at St. Matthews. And I I was this little fat kid and I rolled out and I did all these flips and headstands. And then I got a, a standing O from the gymnasium. And two things happened. I was like going, wow, this feels amazing. And then another part of my ego was like going, yeah, this seems right. You know, when I was in first grade, I made this nun cry and she was pretty upset. And then she dragged me out of my class and put me into this other class and said, sister, I can't take him anymore. And she left me there and I was horrified that I was not gonna see my classmates again, that I was this horrible person. And Tom Kenny, who, people know as he's the voice of SpongeBob and a bunch of other things. He was in that other class, and he thought it was really impressive that I could make a grown nun cry, and he introduced himself to me during lunch. And again, my ego, I remember meeting Tom Kenny and going, "Uh, this poor guy, he's he's doomed because Tommy had glasses already and he was really skinny and stuff. But I have never felt like I was that funny because I grew up around Tom Kenny, who I really think is one of the funniest people I've ever met. I'm aware some stare at my hair. In fact, to be fair, some really despair of my hair. But I don't care, because they're not aware, nor are they debonair. I made the decision to do stand-up when I was really little. I was about nine, and George Carlin was on the Dinah Shore show, and I was home from school and he had long hair and a beard, and he did this poem about hair. And I asked my mother, what does he do for a living? And my mother said, that's what he does for a living. And that moment, I no longer wanted to be a veterinarian. Tom Kenny and I, we would do comedy anywhere. We would do talent shows and senior citizens' homes. And then when we were like 15 or 16, we saw an ad for this guy, Barry Crimmins, wanted comedians to perform at his open mic night. And Tommy, even back then, could do voices. So I had him call because he could sound like (laughs) a grown man. And then... Tom Kenny and I, at you know, 15, 16 years old, show up at this bar to do stand-up comedy. I remember Mary, meeting Barry Crymins as if it was yesterday. He was sitting on stage and he had stacks of newspapers and yellow legal pads and he was writing. And in my head, he was like backlit, and I do remember there's just smoke, a cloud of smoke always coming off of him. And and he looked up at Tom Kenny and I and he went, Ugh. and we said, oh, we're the guys. <laughs> That's their convenience. And he just went, and I still don't know what this means, but he went, ugh, the fucking kitty core. Barry put us on stage and we actually got laughs and he kept uh, having us come on stage. So we get 20, 40 bucks a week and we're kids in high school whose other income was bagging groceries. That's how I got started doing comedy. I got bored of the, the Sweater comics, you know, it wasn't until like Steve Martin and then like Monty Python, things like that, that were anti-establishment and were ripping down the walls. Johnny Rotten probably had more to do with my act than than Johnny Carson. So I, I, I developed this persona, which, you know, was this guy who shouldn't be on stage, and, and I was angry.
0: 39 million people watching me, oh it feels real good to be
1: When I was a little boy, my mother told me you could be anything you want when you grow up, which is a hell of a thing. And then after my first HBO special aired, and I was in my early 20s, my mother says, oh, your Uncle Bill dies. Now this. Great. So that was not a rave review. And I get it. My mother would have loved it if I had had a a traditional act, you know, if I had gone on stage and didn't have this persona and didn't curse. She said, How can I go to mass after that? Yeah, they opened for Nirvana. I, I met Kurt and Chris before they broke. Kurt was a fan of my stand-up, which is always weird for people to find out. It's like finding out that Jimi Hendrix really loved Buddy Hackett or something. But Kurt liked my stand-up. I was performing in Ann Arbor, and Kurt wanted to meet me, so he interviewed me on a college radio station. And then uh, probably a year later, I was opening for them. I was getting hit in the head with M80s and Bibles and boots and children once someone successfully threw a kid out of the pit and hit me in the back of the ankle. We weren't BFFs, but I did spend a lot of time with Kurt on that tour where there'd be nights where it'd just be him and I sitting around talking, and we would share antidotes. Did I say antidotes? (laughs) Yeah, we'd share the cure for polio and things. No, So we would be up all night, and and I'd tell him a story about getting kicked off stage at a benefit for dry-humping Michael Bolton while he was singing, and then he would tell me some weird story about traveling with a Michael Jackson impersonator, so people thought... (laughs) <laughs> Michael Jackson-like Nirvana or whatever. I was at that Unplugged taping and uh, it, was, yeah. uh, it was a lot. But I remember being with them after they did Where Did You Sleep Last Night? And there was executives from MTV and probably label people or management, I don't know who was around, but they wanted them to go out and record more stuff and do like another encore. And I was like, nah, no, I don't really think you're gonna top that. <laughs> Such an asshole. And he's okay. And then he didn't go out. My decision to become a comedian and was made by an eight or nine-year-old. I got on Letterman while I was 20. So, the time that a lot of people are learning how to develop relationships or learning how to pay bills or be a grown up, I I was in the spotlight and I realized none of this was making me happy. You know, when you're young, your anger is, you know, everything's fucked, man. And, And if you're in show business, you're angry at the status quo and everything. But what you're really saying is, they're famous. They're acceptable, and I'm and I'm not accepted. And I would go on talk shows, and people really seem to enjoy it. But I was a spectacle. Like I would do real well, but I was turning into Richard Simmons or some kind of novelty act. Please welcome Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> So like when I set the Tonight Show on fire and when I started smashing up Arsenio Hall and when I did, did all these, I it was very destructive. Like people were going, oh, that's going to be bad for his career. It's like, no, I, I wasn't, it wasn't like a career move. It was, I was trying to end my career. I'm in comedy jail. And I just hated doing stand-up. And later on, I realized I hated this persona that I was trapped in. People don't tell you, like I remember Eric Idle once told me that he won't audition for things. And a big light went on. I was like, you mean I don't have to audition for things? I can say no. I can get off of this wheel. And I often say to people that it's important to quit. And it's important to keep quitting until you end up someplace you don't want to leave. Um, I know something about Amy. Amy blew a dog. What did you say? So, I went and I wrote this movie... It was called stay originally it was sleeping dogs lie when it came out and i gave it to my manager at the time and he said this is a really well written script and i said thanks but we're not going to send it out to people because we're afraid what they're going to think about your mental health so it's a funny story now but at my heart i was devastated and i uh, a couple of days later I, I fired that manager I thought my career was pretty much over, but I, I fired him because I knew that this is not the path I want to be on. So this script, this, this rom-com with a tiny bit of tasty, tasteful bestiality sat in a drawer for about a year. And then my friend, Sarah Disarego, she read it, and she was like, this is a good script, we should make it. And I said, well, we don't have any money. And he said, well, we'll just start and people will help. And that's how we did it. We just stole everything. We stole the gels from the remake of the Poseidon adventure. We pilfered a lot of costumes from the Kimmel show. We filmed in my friend Marty's house and there's a there's a scene in a garage and it's a pivotal scene in the movie, but his garage is filled with crap. So we go to film it and I'm like we can't get in there and Across the street, there was a house for sale, and so we broke the lock off the door, and then we got in the garage, and then we had kinos, we had extension cords going across the road. And I'm saying to this crew who were all students, I was like saying, hey, um, this is a really heavy scene for the actors, so we have to be quiet. And Ian Takahashi, who's the DP, he's like, you don't have a permit again, do you? And I go, ah, I don't know whose fucking house this is. So we shot the scene, and it's in the movie. And then what, honestly, it was like maybe an hour or two later, a moving truck's pulled up to that house. Trevor Groth called me up to tell me that this movie got into Sundance. And I was working at Jimmy Kimmel Live at the time I was directing the show. And uh, I thought it was Jimmy's cousin Sal prank calling me. And I go, OK, Trevor Groth. Uh, could you give me your number and I'll call you back? And he goes, sure. And I was like, oh, my God. So 2006, I, got, I come in there as a middle-aged guy that made a bestiality rom-com. gets in the Sundance. You know, I'm not from USC, high-eyed, with big dreams of making it in the film industry. There was zero expectation. I show up, and it's a packed house because every screening sells out, It's certainly during that first couple weeks. And I go up there and I go, I know some of you are here because you couldn't get into other movies, and I know that uh, this wasn't your first choice. And there's laughter, and I go, or oh, your third, <laughs> you know. And so here's this thing: I'm watching the movie, and my people started getting so excited about it. I'm not I'm not talking about a bidding war or anything, but like people were telling their friends to go see our movie. I actually enjoy watching it with people because I had no expectation that I'd ever see the movie projected in a theater. I didn't worry about, oh, is this going to reinvent me, or can I get an agent, or can I make a deal with a studio, or will this movie get a big distribution? And I think so many young filmmakers ruined that experience because they got their heads so far up their ass thinking about the future. You could've didn't like Kyle,
0: but that's okay. He's that not. I loved him. He was my son. He was also a
1: douchebag. I don't know if I thought there's a thematic link in my work, I make these movies and they all seem to be about different parts of my life. Like, World's Greatest Dad is about me as a middle-aged man quitting, not being afraid to quit, keep quitting till you end up someplace you don't want to leave. Robin's character walks away from fame and he walks away from the relationship that looks pretty good on paper. And he's true to himself. I get a little irked. Uh, when I'm ego surfing and um, they'll have a, a meme of Robin and he says I used to think the worst thing in life is ending up all alone but the worst thing in life is ending up with people that make you feel all alone and his character says that and it really hurts me when I see it and people think that's how Robin felt because Robin had this thing called Louis body dementia which had been attacking his brain and he was misdiagnosed as having Parkinson's and in fact the medication he was taking for Parkinson's is actually bad if you have Lewy dem- body dementia so you so, know You know, he was with his wife and his people he worked with, his assistant, and and I was one of those people. I would get texts all day from him. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't figure out what was going on. But he wasn't alone. He had a lot of us that loved him. It's weird to have somebody that means so much to people, their work, and I understand how they miss him but I miss my friend that had inside jokes and would just text each other. And I miss him when something good happens because it was, he was always really kind and he acted like our careers were on the same path, which is ridiculous. He was one of the biggest stars in the world and I was this dude, you know, doing uh, talking horse movies. But he, he, he was always excited for me and then when, the, when things were bad, we always had each other. So I, I miss that. Do I have regrets? I I watch a lot of my movies, and I have a lot of regrets. Like, God Bless America. I see that movie as a flawed movie. I feel there should have been, I even laid the groundwork, there should have been someone actively pursuing them. I was talking to Terry Gilliam. He says, how come you don't have that scene? I go, I I don't like that scene where Harvey Keitel's looking at a map going, we got to get inside their brain. And Terry says, you have absolutely no concern for the language of cinema. And I was like, can I put that on the movie poster? (laughs) Maybe I have a regret that it took me this long to grow up, that it took me this long to go, oh, these people don't make me happy. I'm not going to have them in my life. My jealousy fueled a lot of my anger early on and so now it doesn't exist and whenever i do see my jealousy creeping up i'll look over at a friend and go wow he's making these really big movies and then i walk backwards and i go yeah and he worked really hard and he always wanted to do that i don't know what it'd be like to sit down and try to make a movie that was popular just not how I'm wired. I think it's funny, like, again, when I'm ego surfing, when I see people who are fans of one movie I make fighting with people or another movie, and they, and like, I don't have a fan base. I'm annoying the people that want to support me. But that was it. You know, Tom Kenny said, as a stand-up comedian, I I did this persona, and it was like a way to to freak out people. They had an expectation of what someone on stage doing stand-up comedy would do, and then I did not do that. But he said once people figured out what I was going to do, that didn't interest me, so he said it made sense that I turned into a a movie maker because I can now freak out people (laughs) (laughs) Who, who are there to see one thing and then they see, you know, something different.
0: Be sure to check out Bobcat's films such as Sleeping Dogs Lie, World's Greatest Dad, God Bless America, Willow Creek, Call Me Lucky, and his latest, Joyride, made with comedian Dana Gould, now available on demand. In better times, Bobcat continues to perform on stage, sans the persona, at venues all over. Best Laid Plans is produced by Todd Luoto and myself. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions and ERLAX. Artwork by Tim Ahern. Find us on the web at bestlaidpod.com. And if you like what you heard today, consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks for listening.